it's Samilla from Menswear by a Woman podcast. I hope you're all doing well. Right, today's guest, I'm so excited that she's actually come on board. Um, I've been wanting to interview her from two years ago, but I am thrilled that she's on here. Her name is Alice Welsh and it's called Alice Made This. Alice, welcome to Menswear by a Woman podcast. Ah, thank you very much. It's lovely to be here. I can't believe that you were like afraid of connecting. I'm probably the least scary person. You are. (laughs) Totally, totally, totally. Um, I think I was very nervous because I saw you. I should have just done it. And, (laughs) you know, but I just must say your jewellery are absolutely gorgeous. Um, It's absolutely beautiful. And um, I think what you've done so far is amazing um, how how you're doing. So how did it all begin, Alice? Oh God, back back in the day, it was like 11 years now, which seems oh, wow. to have gone by in a flash. Um, how did it begin? I actually had a career history in furniture design and oh, product okay. design. Okay. And like design and stuff, so a mix of industrial design and kind of homewares. And spent 10 or 12 years in that industry, traveling around the world, seeing how stuff was made and kind of designing in situ at factories, whether it be in Finland or in... India or in wow. uh, China, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, like properly kind of like saw um, production in its raw kind of format um, and almost saw the industrial revolution of China because was traveling out there from uh, 2003 through to 2018. I think my last trip out there was for um, like AMT studio thing we were doing. Um, and I think um, I'd always wanted to, run my own business and kind of be a bit of a master of my own destiny um and it was just waiting for the time where I found something that fascinated me enough to pursue and something that I could afford to do because working in uh the creative industries um uh when you first start out you basically either work for free or for very little money so I was juggling it with waitressing Formula One randomly um, as like my moonlighting job and then working in a few homewares companies um, for kind of not much pay for the first few years. Um, and then oh, come 2010, I was I got married and that was where I kind of stumbled across the niche at the time of like men's jewellery because right. we were trying to kit out Edward's wedding for our wedding and I just was like... Accessories are shit. Excuse my language. Um, That's right. <laughs> and and at the time there was nothing that was kind of just minimal aesthetic, celebrated materials, and kind of t- told a story. Um, it was just a kind of bolt-on product of a clothing brand, or something that was whimsical, or something right, yeah. that was, um, yeah, just kind of not really that considered so that was the kind of founding moment and then paired with that all of my learnings from I guess being a kid onwards yeah um fell into creating the brand um I'd worked with an amazing company called Four People for a number of years um doing uh, everything from kind of industrial design to design strategy and that really taught me the kind of ground up of brand building in terms of creating a design DNA and um, creating values that are true to you as a person so that they're effortless to kind of maintain and pursue. Um, 
and all that kind of stuff. So it was quite a considered beginning. Um, and I always knew that I wanted to tell the story of production and that I wanted to bring it local. I think from my understanding of going around the world creating products in India, I would be on a roadside in a craftsman workshop yeah. and making a tool for a cast iron, I don't know, a doorstop, for example, or cast iron candelabra, for example. And then in China, I'd be in a very clinical um a uh, massive factory that you're taking around on a golf cart type thing, um, mm. making a cast iron candelabra. And on a shelf to a customer, they were exactly the same product and you would know no different. But the process to which it became that product was so universally different that I was like, it's just talking about raw materials, talking about how stuff is made. Surely that is fascinating to a customer. Mm. And I think mm. that's what I was like, I'm fascinated by it. So and I want everyone to know how my products are made. So that became the kind of mantra of the brand, really, to kind of tell stories wow. of making and celebrating craftsmen, celebrating materials, all that kind of stuff, and, wow. and making locally. That's an amazing story. <laughs> Sorry, if I am, I kind of like just go blah blah blah. So if I chat no, too no, much, no, just no. tell me to shut up. That is an amazing story because. You know, you're right. When you see the craftsmanship and how it's made and all that, it's it's so interesting and it's so important. Very important. Yeah. Because And also like what I find so fascinating is the people that are doing it do it every day, all day. Yeah. Generally from a young age to a very old age. So it's a lifelong craft that yeah. they do with such grace and elegance yeah. because they are absolute experts in what they do. And so why wouldn't you want to talk about that? Like it's in, it's insane. It's beautiful and it's insane. And like I, I went to, um, I worked with Tom Dixon for quite a number of years. Right. Uh, who's a um, amazing kind of British yeah. um, designer. And it was when he started out. So there were like eight of us in the studio and, um, uh, he at the time had got investment from a Swedish business so had become the creative director of Artec which is a Finnish brand and his kind of aesthetic and style was very kind of like raw and almost quite rock and roll and Artex was very purist and lightwood and kind of natural and um, kind of um, uh, almost like scientific in terms of its construction techniques and it was a really nice kind of uh, juxtaposed environment to work in because one week I'd be experimenting with uh, some kind of light that we were just taking apart and working out new ways to kind of, I don't know, fix it into a random bit of metal that we bashed about in the studio. And another time I'd be in a Finnish factory that had been there for 85 years where they'd really understood how to press bend plywood into unique shapes and they were the absolute experts in the world to do it and I went to Artec they've got a I can't remember what it's called D60 stool or something um and watched the craftsmen um do this limited run for us and they put a beautiful I must have been about 25 at the time this brass plaque on the bottom you know the craftsman and this was like I'm not now I'm sharing my age like 20 over you know 20 years ago you know, 19 years ago or whatever. Um, and the, the batch number was written on and the craftsman signed his signature on this little brass pack and then it went to be assembled and packed and the guy that packed it signed my cardboard box. And I, like, treasure that item, having brought it back from this factory visit I did, with so much passion and nostalgia and kind of um, 
understanding of the end-to-end product that I, I even the box I keep because I'm like I can never throw that away it's so precious I've got yeah. the guy that actually yeah. made it who's you know yeah. and I feel like that you know with the the kind of tailoring side of menswear and yeah. really so the materials and stuff it's all of such value that it goes beyond just a material item that's a fascinating story absolutely fascinating oh. wow I did, and- I did it was a it was a good I've had a good journey I've been obviously very fortunate in that like um I've been able to get jobs unlike a lot of people so um <laughs> yeah, but you know definitely, I definitely used it to my advantage should I say good on you of, like good on you any opportunities but it's yeah I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that it's been, I'm, I, I recognise that it's probably been a lot easier for me compared to others. Well, you know, uh, we'll come to that later, I suppose. But I just <laughs> wanted to ask you a bit more about your design and creativity side of it. Now, men's yeah, jewellery, right? Men's jewellery. Uh, yes. I mean, as a menswear designer clothing, I can't figure out how you would start with jewellery. <laughs> just, you know, I mean. How... Yeah, I'm, an, I'm an idiot. <laughs> No, you're not. You're... No, I mean, it was very... And this is also 11 years ago. It was so niche. But God. actually, God. The, the niche element yeah. was the making of us, I, I believe, because I launched it with... I launched it with um, four, uh, four designs in three materials, so 12 SKUs. Right. Right, release. I kind of... I literally came from furniture design, okay? So I was a designer... Didn't know, I did literally didn't know how to use Excel. I I remember asking an accountant friend of mine to literally do some basic sums on Excel. And I look back now and think, oh my God, he must have thought I was absolute fruit loop because I, it was literally just asking him to add stuff up. And anyway, that's a whole other story. Um and and I was and I kind of was like, okay, I'll how do I go about this? I didn't really understand PR, didn't understand marketing. I was kind of a purist in terms of design and development. So I knew right. how to work with a factory, I knew how to make good stuff, and I knew how to design and use technical drawings and kind of do tech packs and stuff like that. Yeah. Um and uh I I wrote a press release and then just sent six people um a product. And one, two of them, one of them is Tom Dixon. One of them was a guy called Rich I'd worked with at Four People. So kind of just to say, this is what I'm up to. Thanks for all your mentorship, effectively. And then uh, Adrian Clark, who was um, at Shortlist. Um, uh, Jeremy Langmead at Mr. Porter. And oh, who was the other one? Robert Johnson at GQ. Right. And we got, so that was uh, end of November 2011. And we got into the Christmas gift guide of GQ. Shortlist, we didn't get a response from. But And um, Jeremy Langmead, on day two of setting the website live, called us in for a meeting at Mr. Porter and bought our collection exclusively wow. for the next. Um, and I think the opportunity and timing were just, right. like, yeah. luckily on point. You know, Mr. Porter had just launched and they were looking for uh, independent, interesting kind of um alternative aesthetic something fresh in the menswear game um and so we were kind of ticking all the boxes for them and then um gq i guess was it was interesting for them to include something so they did um and so we were very lucky we had i'd written in the business plan that i wanted uh mr porter and liberty within the first six months and i think we got them within the first three months and then um, the other, which we, we, I'm sure we can talk more about, the other area that was uh, an opportunity 
um, was that London Collections Men was in action. Right. And and there was a lot of, um, I guess, government support of it. Um, and although we weren't kind of fashion cool or anything like that, we managed to get a static space in there. And they it was the first few years that they'd done it. And I, so I was sat beside some really interesting people that could teach me a lot when they were showing their brands because they'd been doing it for a few years. Becky French, for example, at Marwood, and yeah. um, who I was stood next to and we became great friends. Um, and um, also like buyers were kind of driven through the, the static space to go to the kind of fashion shows. So it kind of gave me a bit of a leg up. Some Japanese suppliers came in and, you know, I got introduced to United Arrows and Tomorrowland and um got in touch with the UKFT, which I, I actually would have had no idea how to access um had it not been at that stage. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, it's, it's, I don't know. It sounds um, it sounds a, like a lot happened within those kind of time. It's like wow compared to Yeah, it was carnage. It was carnage. And I was working full time because obviously when you start a brand yeah, you need yeah. you don't need a salary. Yeah. Uh, and like I literally started the only thing I had like I used any penny I could save which is not much when you're starting out in the creative industry um to to pay for packaging and to pay for the first small run um but my background in production was gold because yeah. I inherently understood how products were made yeah. and I loved having a relationship with a factory so for me to find a factory to work with that I felt comfortable with and they felt comfortable with me is like the making of it as well I still like the first factory we ever use is I still use today I took our Japanese clients there yesterday and I feel so proud to present them to any of my retailers or any of uh, kind of my relationships within AMT that want to go and see because they're just amazing and like all the people I've chosen to work with in terms of the craft side of it like I just I'd I want to show off they're all flipping amazing so uh, yeah I'm very lucky was it well you know at the very beginning of actually starting the brand right did you have yeah. doubts and did you feel like oh should I be doing menswear because I come from furniture did you have any of those doubts or did you say sorry? I, I, I did have a kind of inverted commas imposter syndrome a bit because oh, right. if I'm honest, mm -hmm. the fashion industry terrifies me a bit. Um, <laughs> I think it terrifies a lot of us with all the crap in it. <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't say that. I've just said it. Alice, I've just said it, all the crap in it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Exactly. So I, I definitely had like moments where I was nervous right but okay. I I think I think uh, maybe I don't uh, I don't know maybe it's just naivety I had yeah. I, I was yeah. not very naive to the business side of it which is a blessing and a curse all at once um <laughs> but I was also like I came from a different industry so I could do things my way and kind of be slightly apologetic about it because I came from a different industry and yeah. I wasn't trying to do it in a classical jewelry maker's way or a a fashion trained way I was kind of trying to do it in a way someone coming from furniture or industrial design might do it and I and I actually laid that out as part of my story so if I did get something wrong yeah in terms of a quintessential fashion sense um it was okay so how do you right. can I just ask you with the design ability right with the um with the jewelry right how do you begin to design 
That's what I want to know. Like, uh, how do you one of two you, ways? Yeah, go on. How do you I, go on? Well, I I love working with makers, and I right. love working with factories, and I love seeing how stuff is made. So I most of the time when we open a new process or yeah. start a new process, yeah, um, the starting point will be analyzing that process and sitting with the factory and them talking us through every single element of the process why they do it how they do it the history of it and I kind of go quite deep on say for example I don't know forging or uh, patina or um uh, kind of precision turning um and then I try and be driven and informed by that process and then I'll either flip it on its head or do it in the way it should be done so uh for example our patina process is all about a chemical reaction on the surface of brass or copper right okay um used in the sculpture and art industry very heavily right. um so we were essentially taking something that's done on quite a macro level onto quite a micro level but the patina artist that we work with does patina work for i mean you could name most sculptors that you can think of that are british and he will have touched their art with his patina brush type thing um and so I kind of lean on them and say this is what I do this is your expertise this is my expertise can we come together and make something wicked and then it is a really collaborative process like our stone carving um Phil Suri who's an amazing letter carver um you know like classically trained worked with some amazing kind of um, old letter carvers and kind of cut his teeth, no pun intended, you know, in with them. Um, and like for me to go in and tell him what to do is just like totally disrespectful. And actually you'd lose some some amazing technique or amazing understanding. Yeah. So I kind of tend to go in and just soak up all their knowledge and then say, oh, how about trying this? Oh, how about trying that? And I kind of explain that from the word go. So if I ask stupid questions or if I ask them to try weird things, they're, they're okay with it and they're excited by it wow. and that's how the relationship starts and then another like with our water casting process for example yeah. uh, uh, where it's a more quintessential kind of um jewelry process um uh the team there which is um a casting house in Hatton Garden and North London um the team there just <laughs> know what I'm like so they will bring suggestions to the table so one of the water casting thing came out of George who's the kind of chief caster there just being like I've got something you should look at look at this part of the process and see what you can do with this type thing and it's where they break <laughs> down their materials to go back into the cycle of production um he was like maybe you could do something at that point where you're removing the material at that stage rather than sending it back into the production um so you're kind of making it a kind of almost zero waste in that kind of respect that you're using yeah. up yeah. Um, the leftovers of other people's um, castings. Because yeah. um, when you cast um, in Lost Wax casting, you're left with a tree in the centre, which holds all these branches, which hold the little products on. And then the trees are smelted back down and formed into beads to then go back round into the pots to molten and fill the molds. Um, and so we then started playing with dropping it at different heights through different size holes into buckets of water. Instead of turning it back into beads, we turned it into charms to then use in the jewellery. And it's just fun stuff like that. It's so fun. It's like Blue Peter, but like as a bubble. 
But it's 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 great. I love it because it's like you know the technical side of anything creative is amazing, right? Because when they're both mixed yeah, together, it's yeah. it's. I can't tell you the 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 rush you get inside you when the creative side and the technical side they all come together. It's like a, yeah, it's, it's it's a total different story. Uh, you have to go through it to know it, I suppose. And I do think that like as cliche as it sounds, yeah. like the. I think the greatest creatives are the people that combine art and science together. And yeah, it's not, they're not absolutely. separate sides of the brain. There's just like a emergence of both because yeah. I do think they're like the tech, you know, the way paint is constructed is yeah. very technical. Yeah. Just everything. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. So I find all of, I think I'm a kind of, um, uh, underground scientist kind of in, <laughs> in, internally that's, that can't, isn't doesn't have the brain for science because I'm a bit kind of all over the shop with my brain so <laughs> I apply it to something more lateral I actually call myself more of an engineer in menswear yeah yeah exactly I, because I, I I'm probably like an architect or an engineer in menswear yeah. so when I start designing I, I start thinking about the technical side of it everything um before and then the creative side obviously comes in uh, but it's more like how an architect will actually do a house, you know, the, the technical side of it. And that's how I think of menswear in my head when I come to design. So I totally understand what you're, where you're coming from because it's, it's, yeah. it's a different world. And, right? that's I, and that's where I think, and I think where we talk about the process, I'm just keen yeah. to, I wish that a lot of fashion brands actually talked about their technicians more or talked yep. about yep. the pattern cutters more or yep. cause like, it, for a customer to understand the end to end process of a garment or a product, yeah, I like it. Surely is interesting. Yeah, maybe it's just me. No, no, no. I, I mean, yeah, I know it's quite interesting, right? And mostly the menswear would find it interesting, I think, because I feel like that's much more natural to that world. Any part of um, a pattern of a menswear, right? In um, you know, in clothing, um, the patterns. When you look at the patterns, when they go together, beautiful. They're just amazing, right? Yeah, and when you create them, and when you're actually looking at the how they, even like with tailoring, with the basting of everything, you know, like, totally. It's just, you know, it's not, it's a to it's like having a pen on the actual piece of paper, but actually on the cloth when you're actually designing the armhole, the side yeah. panels, you know, the collar, the revere, the pockets. It's, it's, a, it's like a totally different art, you know, it's, um, yeah. you have to know, yeah. you have and to be like in it to feel it, I presume. Yeah, but it's like everything, isn't it? Yeah. It's even like if you go to an art exhibition and you see a sculptor's maquettes and like sketches and yeah. you're seeing brain on paper and I feel yeah. like it's just, how can that not be fascinating? I used to draw on tissues, like sometimes when I they used know. to get... When I used to get... Like, if you mounted those on the wall, they'd be amazing. And I used to sometimes when I used to sit in cafes or something like, and I'm waiting for friends who are always late because um, I was always late... Um, <laughs> I'd be drawing on, um, when you have this urge to draw, I don't know if anybody else does, but I do, um, I would draw on a piece of tissues and things like that. And when you look at it, if you can, that looks pretty cool, actually, drawing well, on tissues. Well, exactly. You know? Did you keep them or did you chuck them away? Oh, I chucked them away. You need a scrapbook. Yeah, I've got so in. many scrapbooks. It's unbelievable how much scrap. But you know the other thing I do, Alice, is um, I, I normally draw on my phone. And it was I do. Yeah, with my nice. finger. With my finger, I draw on my phone, and I have been from the frustration of not being able to get a job in design or anything like that. So all my Samsung phones 
have all my drawings of illustrations of men. Oh, so they'll all be on the cloud somewhere. I'm sure you could find them again. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're, they're all on there. So yeah. if anybody nicks my phone, that's the thing that yeah. you see is all these illustrations. And it's so weird because Wes, he does it as well. Um, who's an illustrator? He was, yeah, yeah, he's come onto the podcast and he was saying he does the same thing. I'm thinking, great, because I've found someone else who does it as well. But it's it's fascinating. It is fascinating with menswear, right? With jewelry, has it? Yeah, is it growing? Has it grown from where from the time you began? Yeah, definitely, definitely, and it's evolved. Like okay. Well, foundation product was a cufflink. Don't ask me why. I think it was because I'd come from product design and I was like itching for a function as well as a form. Right. And the cufflink had kind of an inherent function. And actually that space was very unchanged for years. Um, And then we went into men's bracelets. And then it wasn't until the likes of Le Gram and Mayanzai and all the kind of... um, other kind of jewellery brands kind of pumped up the volume of jewellery that was available, that it gave kind of the male customer confidence to explore a bit further. Um, uh, and then we moved into <clears throat> kind of lapel pins and shirt studs and stuff like that. And then we moved into women's and then we introduced men's necklaces. And I think the bracelets took a while. And we were, I was known as the cufflink girl for years <laughs> in like retail meetings and stuff. Um, God. I know, I know. Um, and then finally, bracelets took off a bit more, right. kind of in a not, you know, like they did in dribs and drabs, but in a kind of actual sense. And then yeah. COVID actually game changed the, you know, the kind of uh, necklaces and earrings and um, elements beyond um, the basics for us. Right. In that people were on Zoom, weren't seen, so an expression was kind of like from the torso up. Yeah. Um, and that's fairly limiting. And also it was obviously much more casual. So um, people were allowed to uh, kind of experiment a bit more. Because, um, you know. Because and normal people. Do you remember the program Normal People with yeah. Connor's chain? <laughs> yeah. Connell's chain. And, I mean, that literally in the space of like two weeks, our necklaces, I think, doubled or tripled in sales. Wow. <laughs> Ridiculous. It's so weird because when you're doing, um, it's like with menswear, right, in jewellery, the first thing I think about is rings, men's rings, yeah. right? And then I think about bracelets and necklaces, and then that's it, yeah. and cufflinks. Cufflinks is yeah. the most of it, yeah. And that's where you stop. Yeah. But when you look at yeah. your website, right, you think, oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think of that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, yeah oh, we've yeah. paired right back. We've literally, like, three weeks ago, we made the call to pair right back to just cufflinks, bracelets, necklaces. We stopped doing rings, or we are, we, you know, we're in the in the process of phasing out the rings. Oh, really? Why? Um, rings are. Oh, uh, we. I just because I've got. I'm. I'm. I. I've kind of recollected, and we've grown significantly okay. over the course of eleven years. Right. And our skew skew count has grown significantly, but our team hasn't grown significantly. So we've just put more and more pressure on the team. Right. Um, and. I think I've just got to the stage where I'm like, why do we consume? How do we consume? What do we consume? What's it all for? Uh, and I also, I've got a lot of other things I want to explore and right. things that add back to the brand yeah. uh, in terms of responsibility or diversity or um, innovation 
Um, and I just don't have time to even give that my attention. So right. we've curbed, we've closed off women's and we've paired them, we're pairing the men's oh, right wow. back. But rings, back to rings, rings, uh, the reason we are phasing that is that the way people consume today is they <clears throat> return. And rings is our biggest return rate because of sizing. We are not large enough to offer A to Z in terms of sizing unless we make to order. Right. Make to order is a, a amazing service, but we take our service very seriously and we don't have the capacity to make to order every ring that we sell right, okay, because it's yeah. a, a very time-consuming yeah. process. Yeah. And so um, we don't have the cash flow to buy in, you know, five rings of from A to Z in every style we do. Right, right. Uh, and it's not a good responsible use of, you know, um, stock control and material usage and stuff like that. So um, we, yeah, we just have made the call. <laughs> part of me is laughing, part of me is crying, part of me is happy, part of me is sad, you know, one of those things. <laughs> but I'm feeling like there's definitely weight lifted and I've kind of got more time to, to do think other about things. other exciting things. You spoke about diversity, right? And also, uh, you're doing youth trainings. Um, is it youth um, mentoring training scheme also? on? Yeah, we set up in, um, with, do you know Bola Udacina? I haven't seen her, no. He's, um, he's kind of friends with all of them. There's a kind of set of them that are kind of like um, menswear. Right, okay. I mean, I don't want to call them influencers because they might not like that. But no, like, they, um, they don't like that. Music ass, oh, like I know who you're talking about. Yes, I know who you're talking about. Yep, yep, I've seen him. I've seen him on. But on he's my part Instagram. of it as well. But um, uh, in COVID, we set up um, the AMT Youth Program. Yeah. Uh, after George Floyd and everything that went on there, it was right. just. Um, I was very conscious that I was incredibly ignorant about. Um, I, I wasn't racist. But I wasn't particularly anti-racist in so much that I just went about my business and didn't give it that much of a thought, yeah. which is awful. And I kind of like apologize for that now. But I think I, it wasn't intentional. It was just that I was subconsciously cracking on and not thinking about any kind of bigger picture. Right. And yeah. so um, it made me very aware that um, it's as much a white or more so a white person's responsibility to affect change and continue the conversation um and unless we do um change on a much larger scale will and continual growth in change will not necessarily happen anyway so that all kind of went round them um, and uh, so Bolo's involved and then there's a guy called Chris Lambert who wrote an amazing yeah. um article for Esquire called a letter to my white friends yeah uh, uh it's a good read actually and he, I kind of read that and then researched him. I love a bit of research. So if I find a topic, I kind of go all in. Um, and so I kind of read lots of books and was like, I'm slightly mortified that I'm not more well-read in this area. I need to read up about it and um, learn a bit more. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, I got in touch with him, had a really nice conversation with him in August of that year. And he was keen to get involved and he'd grown up in the area where our studio was. Um, right. And so there was kind of a natural affiliation to um, the youth sector in that area. Um, and so I then reached out to my mates in the industry and was like, what can we do? We don't have large amounts of free capital, especially during COVID, yeah, of course. to 
throw money at the situation yeah. but we do albeit a massive luxury we do have the ability to prioritize our time yeah so how can we reprioritize and uh, uh, kind of like support change yeah and everyone there was not one single person in my network that I connected with um that said that they weren't up for getting involved every single one of them said that we have no time and so we then thought if we create a youth program where we are the kind of timekeeper of it and everything that they have to do is very low maintenance for yeah. both them and the young creatives getting involved, yeah. then surely no one can say no. no <laughs> and that's what we did. We reached out to kind of like our network and just said, uh, would you be up for coming a partner? We want to work with the grassroots bracket of uh, we actually have kept it incredibly focused at the moment um, with a view to being more um, wide reaching going forward. But we prioritise African and Caribbean heritage from southeast London, aged 16 to 18, mm-hmm. to get a foot in the door in the creative industries. Yeah. And I had quite a lot of conversations where people would collectively say, yeah, Alice, but... Uh, and apologies if this is offensive because I don't mean it's not it's not coming from me. I'm just recalling the conversations that I'd had. Um, yeah, but there's just not the quota of people in the industries to pick from, you know, at the certain levels and stuff like this. And there were a lot of ex- there was a lot of excuse excuses around it all. And I was like, OK, so if we take it from the grassroots up, then and you're and those people are coming through the door from the ground up, then surely yeah. there will be right quota in inverted comments going forward um and so the other thing that came with doing that age bracket was that we could do a shadowing program right which then removes the uh kind of like uh london living wage conversations and um uh the pressure to brand because obviously we work with small brands and individual freelancers and stuff like that the pressure to commit from a financial perspective it was all about commitment from experience and um uh, time basically so um in a nutshell the youth program has three focuses it, it it offers one to two weeks of work shadowing over the summer with our partners um it um then it covers any costs that relate to that so the travel and the lunch and anything any costs they incur by doing that so it doesn't close the door to people that can't manage that um it then offers each young creative that comes through the program 500 pounds to spend on something that will support their future creativity so it could be a resource it could be a piece of equipment it could be a train training kind of program it's up to them and that's on a case-by-case basis and it's up to the value of 500 pounds they're not given that as raw cash they're given it in the form of whatever they choose to use it for right okay um and then thirdly it's kind of the continued network so um uh once you've been part of the program you're part of the alumni as such and then come you know five six seven eight nine years you'll start seeing that kind of feed back into the program because they'll uh in the utopian world (laughs) be out in industry kicking ass and then being able to feed back into the younger generation and it is literally the most rewarding work to do to date it sounds amazing, Alice. It really does sound amazing because what you just said, um, you know, when you said um, what they actually turned around and said to you about, oh, they're not the right people to be in the industry. Where are they, right? You know, it's, how many times have I heard that said to me? 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. how many times have I been told that I don't fit in? So it's it's amazing what you're doing. It's um it's I think it's 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 hard work. I'm very grateful to have. I've got a great team. Like like this is a prime testament to it. Actually, I've got a great team that help. We've got kind of four directors, and then I've got a program manager. And um, you know, one of the directors is at Adobe, and, and part of the um, Black Employee Network there. Another yeah. director is part of the Farfetch Black Employee Network, and yeah. it's just like it's like people really want to to affect change. Yeah. And so I I just I really just hope hope it continues and isn't like I just I, I you know like in 2020 it was yeah. such a conversation yeah. even now I feel like it's waning well, it and kind of fit it kind of fit my jigsaw puzzle actually because there was like pieces that I was putting together and I couldn't understand why why things happened to me like what was because literally I thought I was crap I, I thought right this is it this is the reason why I've never actually been able to do design work and why I found it really tough because I'm literally rubbish. I literally thought that. Uh, but when this kind of thing happened with George Floyd and, you know, the uproar in the industry and where the industry people are saying, yeah, we were the ones, you know, we did, you know, make sure that BAME um, weren't able to come into the industry and kept them low. It was us doing that. And that's when it hit me and thinking, oh, my God, that's the reason. It was because of the colour of my skin. It's not sad. It's just so sad. And, and, and I think where I, where I look back and struggle is that, like, I... And it, that was just, it, like... I, just, Alice, I, I, never, I never considered, like, what you were necessarily going through. I would have... I When I, that like, came I through me... And I, I, just, I definitely saw the the white, like... Well, I the, didn't... The white I, face in the industry but I would never say tell me your story prior to that but that's awful isn't it but it's it's anyway. it's absolutely ugly in a sense because I never thought it was that that was the case I never ever thought that was the case until 2020 I know and I think I think yeah I think I was very fortunate as well to have a lot of people that were willing to chat about it and kind of open up to me about it and talk about their experiences and um yeah but I was quite surprised like uh, and 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 that I in itself I feel a bit kind of guilty about because it hadn't you know when you just hadn't given a thought to it yeah but which is at the awful, end of the day but, right, but it took it took George Floyd to bring that to my attention which is even worse but anyway. you know what at the same time right I, I mean I I think um a lot of us didn't give a thought to it because being born and brought up here I I didn't even give it a thought. A lot of us never did. Mm. People of colour, right? I don't know about everyone else, but I didn't think it was that that was the reason because I thought we've gone all past all this. But in 2020, yeah. when everything fitted, and I just thought, surely that's not the reason. You know what I find interesting? And I like, um, I, I, I do find that some people still find the confrontation of it yeah. hard. And yeah. And I have definitely found myself having kind of like being a bit nervous about discussing things in front of big groups of people when I'm presenting the program, because obviously I am like a white middle class female. It's kind of like and 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 it's not about me. It's about um, bringing the young creatives yeah. who are from African Caribbean heritage through the system. So you don't want to kind of. <laughs> dwell on it but and I so I've actually really enjoyed putting myself in uncomfortable situations and sometimes maybe getting terminology wrong and being able to be corrected without 
See, I think a lot of people feel like if they are corrected, someone's being a aggressive towards them or say or being confrontational towards them but it's all about learning and educating yourself on how to make change and do it and act on it and I think people just need to um embrace not it not being about their uncomfortableness and just crack on and one I thing, don't know. Well, one I, I'm thing not being very articulate about it, but um, yeah, I just feel like it's very easy not to do anything, and I think everyone should take responsibility to do something about it. One thing I'm, I must say, about Alice, is creativity has no, yeah, there's no rules of uh, what gender it is, about um, the color of your skin, what you, what your disability exactly. is. It has nothing exactly. to do with that. Creativity. Yeah. I mean, if we stand together, can you imagine how amazing we, we all could be? If we stay apart, how crap is that? It's an amazing and country. Like, it's amazing. Yeah, we've got exactly. so much here in creative field. We've got the most top universities. We've got the most creative people in this industry. And yet again, there's these idiots who want to keep us separate. So do you lot because right. we're not going to be separate. <laughs> you know, you can right. you can frig off, you know, get lost. Because it's, it's time and to it change. It's where the most beautiful things happen is when you, you know, you explore and celebrate different cultures and bring them all together and learn from each other. I just, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, you know more than anyone, right? <laughs> well, so do you, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you. Okay. Exactly. And on that note, Alice, I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on board because it's been an absolute honour. And a pleasure. Oh my goodness! And amazing so to have you on board. Don't think we get together physically. We have to. We really have to. Yeah. Definitely. But thank you so much, Alice, for coming on to Menswear by a Woman podcast. It's been an absolute honour. Absolutely. And I don't oh, know why I waited two it. years to get you on board. Oh. oh well, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Such a nice start to the day. Oh, thank now you. Now I've got to do some work. Thank you. Take care, lovely.